This is Empod. From the Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security, and Justice at Queen's University Belfast, this is Empod, a podcast about conflict, peace, and justice. This program features and is led by master's students in the Conflict Transformation and Social Justice module here at Queen's. I'm Carson Cahoe. I'm Sinead Dean. I'm Morgan Mattingly. And each month, we will examine different topics relating to social justice, peace and conflict studies, and the ways they impact the world around us. The legacy of the Northern Ireland conflict has brought forward ideas and examples of transitional justice, as many students now at both universities here in Belfast are fortunate in being able to study with some of the best academics working in this field. On this episode of MPOD, we will be having a discussion on the key elements of transitional justice, and we'll be speaking with one of our peers, MA student Katrina Goldhammer. Katrina took a course last semester on this subject and being fascinated with this topic, largely due to the teachings of esteemed activist come academic Professor Kieran McAvoy, who she went out and interviewed for this episode. Welcome, Katrina. Thank you. It's great to have you here. And I know that when we were talking about ideas for episodes, you were really eager to have this one um, because of how impressed you were with Professor Kieran McAvoy. Just give us a brief introduction to both yourself and the interest that you have in this topic. Okay, so my background is in my first degree was actually a chemistry degree, so it bears no relation whatsoever to what we study here, other than it's a, a sort of a symbiotic ongoing process. And transitional law for me is the same sort of thing. It's an ongoing process that allows us to transfer from a situation of war into a situation of peace and that's what we're looking at to to be to be so lucky as to sit in Kieran's lectures which is what I feel I was he is the most enthusiastic person you could ever meet and you sit literally on the edge of your seat throughout his entire lectures and I found him completely inspirational and the topic itself is covers so many different things that affects everybody in every conflict situation around the world to this day and going forward. Fantastic. I think it's really great that you've got such a sort of high regard for him and I think reading a bit more about his background, his activist profile as well as someone that has consistently stood up for human rights and for sort of victims of conflict is is really um, phenomenal. So I came from an activist background myself and um, so after college I joined a lawyer by background and then did criminology masters and then my first job out of college um, was working as a prisoner's rights activist. So I worked for a big charity here in Northern Ireland called NIACRO, it's like the, it's the equivalent of NACRO in England. So our job was looking after um, the rights of serving prisoners or prisoners' families or indeed released prisoners. And so when I was their policy kind of law guy. And so I came from that kind of background. I've always been interested in not just academic knowledge for its own sake. Um, and then when I came to Queen's in 95, I was quite active in civil society organisations here um, around human rights. I was involved in the establishment of community-based restorative justice programmes as an alternative to punishment violence. And so I've always worked quite closely with um, civil society and NGO groups. Can you tell us a little bit more about Kieran's work? So Kieran's work, he's been involved with transitional justice for about 20 years now. So he's 
been involved with very, very many situations all over the world, every area of conflict you can think of in the last 20 years, Kieran's been involved with, including very, very recently just flying back from Hong Kong and getting himself involved in that conflict. I'm well aware that he was in Colombia last year and has an ongoing commitment to the Northern Ireland situation. So, Katrina, we've taken a listen to your interview with Kieran, and it was it was all focused on this concept of transitional justice. As both you and he make readily apparent, it's uh, an enormous umbrella term, which includes a lot of processes and ideas relating to post-conflict societies that are trying to transition away from conflict. Essentially, about what can what can be done to deal with the after effects of conflict. And the primary driver for that is about addressing not just the human rights violations that have occurred, but also the principle of non-recurrence. That in order for a society to prevent the same thing from happening again, you have to address the past. That's what transitional justice is about at its core. Could you tell us a bit, of, a bit more about transitional justice as an idea? And this is why I thought it'd be interesting to do this podcast, because it's such a large topic and people think of justice just relating to court structures, whether it be international tribunal, courts, Cambodia, um, Yemen, um, Bosnia, Herzegovina, all people have heard of those, but actually it involves the civil courts within individual countries and therefore even after the peace treaty has been written, Transitional justice keeps on going through truth commissions, as in South Africa. Now, now we have a formal definition here, which is from the International Centre for Transitional Justice, uh, which defines transitional justice as referring to the set of judicial and non-judicial measures that have been implemented to redress the legacies of massive human rights abuses. I think the important part of this definition is, is that Transitional justice as a field then is inherently focused on the past and dealing with legacies of conflict and the way that uh, the past of conflict still affects post-conflict societies today. And Kieran talked about, about this as well. Almost inevitably, parties to a conflict will have very differing versions of history mm-hmm. and about their role or responsibility or culpability in the past conflict. So transitional justice mechanisms are often part of that broader social or political conversation about who did what to whom, who was responsible. And so what tends to happen, certainly at the earlier stage of a transition, is that um, parties are very happy to blame the other, very happy to talk about the wickedness that has been done to them or their community, and less willing to engage in their own responsibilities as as political or, or military actors in a conflict. And so part of the transition, essentially, is about getting people to come to terms with not just the, the harms that were done to them or their community, but to accept and take responsibility for whatever they have been responsible. So that's part of the transitional justice conversation, is encouraging people to take ownership of their own past harms, as well as the harms that were done to them. And what's interesting about transitional justice is its engagement with history. Um, and Kieran brought up a really excellent point that there are so many issues with the way we tell the stories of the past. And particularly every side has a different version of it. So whomever the winner in a conflict is has 
a different story to tell and that affects the way that they view reparations, the way mm. they view all efforts for transitional justice. Which is part of what makes the idea of transitional justice so difficult because it's, it's, it's about more than just bringing different communities together because bringing communities together doesn't change the underlying narratives that mobilize people, that, that people use to understand their own and their own communities' role in conflict. And for me, what you say is, is absolutely right. History is written by the winners of every conflict, but that doesn't mean the winners didn't do some of the human rights abuses going along, and therefore there is fault on both sides, and that fault on both sides needs to be dealt with, otherwise you won't be able to have peace going forwards. In one of our previous episodes we mentioned the idea of negative peace, and if we don't have this transitional justice, we may not be killing people on the streets, but we're still living in that negative justice because people's haven't had any closure. <laughs> it's hard to say for sure that one definition will ever be perfect because you want flexibility in transitional justice. You want to identify the individual problems in a conflict and try to address them. I think politically people feel when there's been a peace agreement that's it, everything's over and done with now and we can just move forwards. Unfortunately, people aren't that simple. They don't, their memories don't just stop because the fighting's over. Many people have disabilities that have been given to them through the conflict. They've lost family members. Sometimes in Northern Ireland, three and four generations have been wiped out in this conflict. How can you just forget about that? You can't. And therefore you need ongoing legal processes that help you address and move forward as well as, as you say, Carson, allow the two communities to start meeting and interacting. Because if we don't take responsibility, we can't move forwards. And I think that idea of meeting and interacting is really interesting in how it links back to our first episode on communities meeting at the interface of conflict. Um, obviously, that was two quite interesting cases to do with literal borders between communities. But I think this idea of transitional justice is perhaps one of the only ones that deals with issues of intergenerational trauma, as well as the like literal sort of measures being put in place for the people who have suffered in the first instance. But I think it's really important to, to include that sort of the way that transitional justice allows intergenerational trauma to be addressed as well through, like you say, ongoing measures that meet the needs of communities as they progress out of conflict. Absolutely. I'm totally right with that. And I think it's also important, just because I didn't mention this earlier when I was uh, explaining the definition, the specific transitional justice measures are focused on dealing with the legacy of conflict in various legal and societal ways. Uh, measures include criminal prosecutions, truth commissions, reparations programs, and other various kinds of institutional reforms. And I think looking at those kind of legal measures and talking about the role of history, I think when I came to this subject, my understanding of it was something similar to the Nuremberg trials, which took place after the Second World War. 
I think it was really interesting to do a bit more research about that and realise that whilst these did set a precursor to some of the legal framework, that actually the role of transitional justice is very different and it involves much more community-based justice, community-based reparations and, and measures that move this subject forward. Transitional justice has really only been around for 30 or 40 years as a thing. Mm. I think we have become... Uh, better at, at the design of these things and mm. about so it's harder now for authoritarian states um, to design self-serving amnesties you can't do it legally anyway you can't you can't have a certainly you can't have a blanket amnesty for example for um, serious crimes international um, human rights um, violations at the upper end of mm. the uh, international criminal justice spectrum so uh, we've got better at it but it depends on the, on the local context I mean, you will have very different variations of transitional justice in different political and social contexts. So, for example, um, after the military dictatorship in Chile, um, the outgoing military dictatorship introduced an amnesty. Now, that amnesty was primarily uh, applied to and directed at those who had loyally served at General Pinochet during the military dictatorship and people who'd been involved in horrendous human rights abuses and torture, murder, um, systematic sexual violence. And so that is an example, that amnesty is an example of transitional justice, but it's not in any sense fair or objective. People might refer to the trial of the uh, Romanian dictator Nicolae Ceausescu, the post-conflict trial, um, as a version of transitional justice. I think the trial took 20 minutes. You know, <laughs> so it totally depends on the context. And as I say, we've got better at designing out um, the more obvious, egregious versions of transitional justice. So I think what we've kind of been discussing is really the idea that transitional justice is a constantly evolving concept and it's clearly a developing idea and notion which we've had a good stab at kind of discussing and going over but I think it is really difficult to define. And going back to some of these early attempts at transitional justice, so as much as Nuremberg is not fully what we'd see as a modern understanding of transitional justice, I think what it has done is it set up precedent for people of kind of grand institutions, international cooperation, really a heavy involvement in the in the established legal sector, creating an idea of a kind of top-down approach to transitional justice. Yeah, Kieran talks a lot about the importance that uh, international institutions, and he talks specifically about the United Nations. So we now have all of the accoutrements of uh, a respectable uh, discipline or area or field of study in that, for example, there's increasing um, material coming out of the United Nations. We have a UN Special Rapporteur on Transitional Justice. And so that Special Rapporteur is um, someone who will come to a particular society. He's been here in Northern Ireland the former rapporteur, um, Pablo Griff, and will help local political actors, civil society and others um, in designing um, you know, what you should do in terms of addressing truth or addressing the needs of victims and so on and so forth. So you have an increased, so you've got international standards, evolving international standards, international legal standards, but you also have an architecture and an infrastructure um, in order to help um, local actors to design and transitional justice. What you also have, and it's quite interesting in this area, is you have a lot of uh, transfer of ideas, essentially. So you know the, the the Argentinians or the Chileans 
help the South Africans in the design of the South African uh, Truth and Reconciliation process. The South Africans, in turn, would be working with the Sierra Leoneans. The South Africans came here and helped us a lot in the design of different bits of our um, uh, transitional stuff. So th there's a lot of international traffic and transfer of ideas and people and personnel across these sites. The UN can provide a forum for different nations that are going through processes of transitional justice to share their various models. However, I think Kieran really speaks about the tension between this top-down and what he sees as a more bottom-up, victim-centric approach that comparatively is a lot more successful for the real people involved and the longevity of the of the concept of transitional justice. We all get better because you have civil society organisations and victims, victims groups and representatives and victims themselves taking on these very powerful institutions and talent and saying you aren't really representing our interests, you know, and so one of the good things about transitional justice is it's receptive to pressure from below um, and pressure from civil society organisations, from victims groups and others. And so it's while historically it was a very top-down way of dealing with the after effects of conflict, but seeing like a state, um, setting up state-like institutions because of the pressure of bottom-up mobilisation from civil society organisations, NGOs, victims organisations, human rights groups and others, the, those in power within transitional justice structures have had to adapt what they do. And so, for example, taking seriously the rights of victims and looking after victims properly and finding mechanisms that address their needs in a proper way and not simply seeing them as witnesses, those have all become normalised now. And that's precisely because of the mobilisation of victims groups and others. The whole question of what a victim-centric process of transitional justice actually looks like can some, sometimes get obscured when you look at these you know, large state or interstate institutions that engage in processes of transitional justice. A lot of criticisms that were leveled against the United Nations was that victims in these tribunals were operationalized as key witnesses in criminal prosecutions rather than having their own needs and desires listened to and met. One of the things about transitional justice is that it, rhetorically at least, it always talks about uh, being a victim-centered mm. uh, approach to dealing with conflict or the after effects of conflict. Whether or not that's totally true is, is, a, is, a, is a matter of debate and discussion. So for example, the big international tribunals that were established um, after Yugoslavia, the, uh, the Yugoslav tribunal, similar tribunal established after Rwanda, um, you then had other hybrid tribunals which are basically a combination of international law and, and local law. And a lot of the criticisms that came out, and you've also had the International Criminal Court, of course, and a lot of the criticisms that came out of those, the way, the way in which those tribunals worked, was that while they were rhetorically very victim-centered, in practice, what was driving those mechanisms was the desire to get prosecutions. And in that case, the victims became instrumentalized in many instances. They became witnesses. And so they were more worried about the credibility of the witness victim rather than dealing with the psychological or physical consequences of the harms that people had, had inflicted upon them. Now again, we've got better at that, but certainly in the Yugoslav um, tribunal and in the Rwandan tribunal, there was a lot of critical discussion about just how well victims were being dealt with and looked after, and not very well is the answer. And um, Now we've got better at it, but the, so we are rhetorically committed to victims. I think we've let victims down at different stages in the evolution of the discipline. 
Yeah, I've, I was actually really lucky a few days ago to go to a excellent conference here on looking at the southeast of Europe, specifically a lot of the, the speakers at this roundtable. They spoke about victims in the former Yugoslavian um, countries and one academic, I can't think of her name, but I will try and link it on social media. She's doing a lot of work at the moment in the victim approach in Bosnia-Herzegovina and looking at the fact that because the court system is so involved, it means that you have to use victim as a term because it's a legal term as opposed mm. to someone who survived a particular part of these crimes or what happened to them. I think it's looking at the language, it creates victims, but doesn't necessarily empower them or mm, yeah. try and look at to move them on from their position as, as victims. And I think that's right in, in many ways, but I also think that we need to take on board in the lots of victims are women there's a lot oh, of yeah. sexual violence mm. yes of course. but who wrote the laws yeah. most of the law was written by men and it's only the late 1990s that it started to become apparent that women weren't viewed within the court system as victims as an equal victim to man because the law didn't make it look like that and that's when women were beginning to stand up in the courts and they were giving testimony that was just quite horrific mm. to listen to. And this is where transitional justice begins to change and where we begin to bring in mental health support for the victims because we start to take on board just... We cannot achieve a transition if we don't mm. take on the victimhood and I hate the word victimhood um, but also this is why it's so important to have that bottom-up approach that comes along because sometimes we don't have the laws yet yeah and we need that bottom-up activism to <laughs> allow those laws to change we all get better is because you have civil society organizations and victims victims groups and representatives and victims themselves taking on these very powerful institutions and talent and saying you aren't really representing our interests you know and so one of the good things about transitional justice is it's receptive to pressure from below um, and pressure from civil society organizations from victims groups and others and so it's while historically it was a very top-down way of dealing with the after effects of conflict but seeing like a state um, setting up state-like institutions because of the pressure of bottom-up mobilization from civil society organizations, NGOs, victims organizations, human rights groups and others, the, those in power within transitional justice structures have had to adapt what they do. And so, for example, taking seriously the rights of victims and looking after victims properly and finding mechanisms that address their needs in a proper way and not simply seeing them as witnesses, those have all become normalized now. And that's precisely because of the mobilization of victims groups and others. So... Katrina, from your conversation with Kieran, what does a bottom-up approach to transitional justice look like? How can that be achieved? One of the classic examples, again, starting in Northern Ireland, but is around the world as well, um, is the victims, the, the families of the victims of the disappeared. Mm -hmm. They're hidden victims. They've just vanished. And their families are left behind with nothing. Mm -hmm. And 
for many many years their silence was was all they had they were too frightened to bring their problem slowly they began to talk to each other they got involved with the wave trauma center here in belfast they all became internet interconnected they started writing letters they Mm. couldn't they could get things into the press but they couldn't get any traction with the government so eventually they highlighted the issue to senators over in America. Senators over in America started putting pressure back on the British government. Mm. And slowly the the families of the disappeared have now been recognised as victims of the Troubles, whereas until that recognition happened, they weren't even considered victims. Mm. So I think what is good to kind of look at that as the approach because what you've spoken about includes these institutions still but it's driven by the victims which is the important part not like the institutions aren't putting their views onto the victims so that's the that seems to be the kind of real crux of this bottom-up approach um it seems really obvious when you look at it and it seems a bit silly that we haven't thought of this before but i think it's just such a difficult thing to do and I think like you say organizations like the Wave Trauma Center provide opportunities for connections between victims which don't often exist before it's this creating networks and and communications which are so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah it's really interesting to look at the practicality of it civil society organizations definitely play a huge role in connecting people together but if we look at the legal system and how that plays a role internationally where does the voice of the victims come in? Well, and that's that, that entire question of, of how to incorporate the voice of, of victims and sometimes perpetrators, uh, com- combatants in violence, you know, how, how their uh, voices and needs can be heard uh, in these otherwise legal and political processes. Uh, Kieran talks a lot about himself working as an academic with civil society organizations and the partnering to serve as intermediaries between these these groups of people who were involved with the conflict and these people whose needs must be met if any programs of transitional justice are to uh, affect their you know intended audiences and the politicians who are ultimately going to be the ones working in these institutional fields where where the, the, you know, whatever laws or tribunals or uh, truth commissions, that sort of thing, wherever that will actually be hashed out. And I think this is where social media has started to play a massive role. You look at the Rohingya, if Mm. we didn't have social media, if you look out in Egypt, if we didn't have social media, if we didn't have those things being highlighted to mainstream media, then around the world we wouldn't know of those things. And it's only because of that interconnectivity around the world that victims are beginning to get more of a voice now. And their voice means something. You know, the people at the top won't necessarily do something. We look at the Viking capitalism that uh, Kieran talked about to do with the banking crisis. We, we were in six countries uh, looking at how different societies dealt with the banking crisis. And so we, I did the field work for Iceland and in, I, I, and in Dublin, so for the Irish and the Iceland. And then he did, um, Joseph did Spain and Cyprus um, and Portugal. And so we were looking basically at how different societies dealt with it. And it was really, so in, in the in the Icelandic context, because the Iceland was broke basically, mm. and in the Icelandic context they did really interesting stuff. So first of all, because it was such an it's a small island, small economy, very very wealthy place mm. historically, they because they had this thing called Viking capitalism. So Viking capitalism is essentially a cell. It was a kind of Icelandic nationalist 
version of so they they had a lot of money and they were investing heavily in banks in, across Europe, lending heavily as well. And so they, they framed this politically as the new Viking invasion. We, we invaded Europe you know, back in the 5th century onwards, and now we're doing it as bankers, right? So they were called Viking capitalism. And they got totally carried away with themselves, there was lack of regulation. Anyway, how they responded as a society is really quite interesting, because first of all, they had a truth commission yeah. uh-huh. on the banking crisis, but then they had prosecutions. And one of the things about, one of the technical problems about prosecutions in this area, in the financial area, is the, 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 the so when I interviewed senior officials in the Ministry of Justice in, in Dublin, their line was, it's really hard to get these prosecutions for corruption because it's hard to get the smoking gun, right? It's hard to get uh, bankers, you know, who's saying in the email that it's obvious that they're, you know, that they're, they're, they're all very smart. So it's hard to catch them with the line. Actually, in, in Iceland, they, they successfully prosecuted about 40 or 50. And the reason, the way that they did it was they developed bespoke software. I spent millions and millions on this very highly complex uh, technical software that allowed the state investigators to drill deeply into the email systems of the bankers and right into their tech systems, right? And they just changed the constitution to allow them to do this legally. So they just... This, they, they said, fuck privacy laws, basically. We are going deep into the, every email, every bit of the system, all the technical bits. They spent a fortune on this, and they successfully prosecuted 40 people. What does that tell us? It tells us that if, if the state has the political will yeah. to go after bankers, it can be done. And that's the difference. Um, and, in, in, and in the context of the Republic of Ireland, there was no political will to do that. So in Iceland, they wanted to get them, basically, and they got them, because yeah. they were willing to spend all that money. They, they yeah. trained up teams, very high-tech stuff, that were just drilling deep into the IT systems of the banks. Um, and they just said, forget about privacy, like, forget about all that nonsense, we are going after you, and we're going to get you. And they got them. Because I think Iceland is, a, is an outlier on this, because they wanted to get them. Because mm. it was existential for the country. Like, I mean, it was there, the whole country was, like, like, it was really on its knees. Mm. Like, it's a small island. Mm. Um, and so they were, there was a political determination. The left had come into power in Iceland, and there was a political determination. We are going to get these people. And they did. Now, there are plenty of governments around the world that haven't really done anything. You won't see a banker in jail. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Iceland, you do see the bankers in jail because it was getting very embarrassing for the government, and they weren't going to get voted in again unless they did something. Mm-hmm. And, and Iceland, as you point out, Katrina, the Icelandic government was very proactive in prosecuting a lot of the bankers who were involved in uh, Viking capitalism. So Kieran talks about the Bradley Report in 2009 and the 2014 mm. Stormont House Agreement, both of which were political processes and, and acts related to transitional justice with which he was involved. I did, the first piece of work I did on this was, again, with an NGO, with Healing to Remembering, in 2006 wrote a major report on how to address the past um, and drew, drew extensively on international experience but it was so that was this is an example of your civil society kind of work that group that's uh, into remembering there so I wrote the report but the group that were involved included um, a former British soldier several former IRA people former loyalist combatants serving police officer who's now the deputy chief constable actually um, uh, victims groups, human rights groups, and so forth. And so they're very diverse people, very diverse backgrounds, but basically we managed to craft a report um, about options for dealing with the past that we could all sign up to. 
and, and then that, this is a good example of bottom-up, top-down um, interaction. That piece of work, it came out in 2006, is then adop- adapted by the Eames Bradley Commission, which is set up in 2000, set up by Tony Blair in 2007, reports in 2009, which lifts lots of that piece of work and then comes up with so many ways to do this thing. But anyway, 2009, the Eames Bradley report comes out, recommends a, a legacy commission. Um, it falls apart, and again, this is the interesting thing about victim mobilisation, because of one particular recommendation. They had a recommendation contained in that report that £12,000 would be given to every uh, family affected by the conflict, so families yeah, of IRA yeah. or families of loyalists, as well as civilians or um, members of security forces. And there was a big reaction to that recommendation, particularly in the unionist victim sector. And so that, that was dropped, that, and then the whole report fell apart. So 2013, you have a renewal of negotiations. You have the five local political parties um, and the two governments, slightly at, at arm's length originally, but then they become more involved in 2014. Anyway, throughout that process, myself and our colleagues here at Queen's have been working very closely with a number of important NGOs. And I think that helps our work, to be honest. I think it makes us very grounded in what we're doing. So we, one of the things, for example, that we did was um, when the Stormont House Agreement is agreed in 2014, which contains four mechanisms for dealing with the past. And then the team here at Queen's working with the Committee on Administration of Justice, which is the local human rights NGO, which I've been involved with for 25 years. We produced draft legislation. To, and we got our legislation out first before the government. Because we kind of learned from the previous experiences there's a lot of political energy goes into the reaching of, a, of, a, of an agreement and then people tend to take their eye off the ball and that's where the rats can get gnawing at an agreement because actually the delivery mechanism for any agreement is the legislation yeah. so that the, the elements of the Stormont House Agreement relating to the past are I think they're about 7 or 8 pages of bullet points the, the draft legislation is 180 pages with lots of subsections and, you know, and so that's where the detail gets done yeah, yeah. and so anyway we decided to the, the Queen's team and the local human rights um, NGO, we drafted our own legislation and we got it out first. That became a basis for conversation in civil society, you know, because then you have victims groups or retired police officers or um, ex-prisoner groups or former military personnel um, all saying, well, you know, the Queen's CAGA team, we became known as the Legacy Bill team. <laughs> the Queen, and then you have the, the, real, the real bill and our bill, you know, so it's going to all get slightly confused. But anyway, people were using that then, which is exactly what we wanted, saying, well, you know, there's section 2.5 here, which talks about victims uh, and victim-centeredness, defines these set of rights. Why don't, why don't you include, include those rights? You know, so it became quite important because it's complicated and technical stuff, this, and our job in all of this has been to try to produce accessible and usable information for ordinary people, particularly mm-hmm. ordinary uh, victims and others. Um, and then people make up their own mind what they want, but they should do it from a position of information and being informed has been mm-hmm. argued. It's quite often in the legacy in the legacy discussion and in other discussions in politics, um, there's a lot of heat and not much light, you know. And so, our view has been to keep informing the public debate again mm. and again and again. And, and he talks about his engagement with civil society organizations as an academic, um, and and the civil society organizations acting as, and I quote, bullshit busters to sort of challenge the politicization of these processes that are designed to deal with sensitive su- subjects related to the past. Something that I wonder about then is um, the extent to which civil society can effectively act as a bullshit buster and, and challenge uh, 
the sorts of narratives that political parties and political leaders might present that would be difficult to engage in acts of transitional justice. For me, in this country, in Northern Ireland, we have the Pat Fucane Centre. The Pat Fanukan Centre. Fanukan, sorry. Yeah, no, sorry. Just just confirming that one. I'm just Um, having an English problem on that one. Which represents victims and their interests going back to the Troubles. Now, if that organisation wasn't there, then a lot of the things that were coming to the fore in the courts today wouldn't be there. Yeah, I mean, I don't... I think, like Katrina's saying, these centres are really important. Like the Wave Trauma Centre, mm-hmm. I think one of my housemates is also was also on the course with you and, and uh, went to the Wave Trauma Centre. I know she was speaking a lot about how impressive this organisation was in both their addressing of mental health concerns mm-hmm. as a relation of post-conflict, but also, like you were talking about, creating these networks and connections between victims. I think that's a really important role of civil society. Mm-hmm. I think there is an element at which they can be like bullshit busters. Mm -hmm. I think there's also, having worked in charities and NGOs before, there is always a risk that, and I think especially within the United Kingdom where a lot of charities are tied up to contracts that are given out by the government, Mm -hmm. there is always the risk that we can look at civil society organisations as being bullshit busters when actually they, I mean, I know there are laws that sort of uh, define what you're allowed to do if you work for a charity in terms of being political. Yeah. So I think we need to be wary of, of allowing charities and civil society organisations to be given that term. But mm. I do think in certain groups, I think for grassroots activist groups, definitely I think there's a there's a real kind of use of them busting the bullshit. Challenging yeah. these prevailing political narratives. Yeah. yeah, I think the only problem though is also the size of the society. Like here in Northern Ireland, of course, it's kind of a smaller society um, and it's a little bit more, you're more Mm -hmm. able to directly engage with the government and directly engage with the different... Well, when they're around. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You're, You're able to engage with the different structures. But in a more global perspective, not every civil society has that large of a voice, so they can't always act as those bullshit busters. Yeah. But I think Sinead has a fantastic point. How many NGOs, civil society organisations actually highlight who is financing them? Because we don't know who finances them. We don't actually know what their real agenda is. So, yes, we need the activism, the bullshit busters to come along and point out, well, actually these people's agenda is not the agenda that you think it is. So... I think that's very important. Yeah. And, and so I, I think of this in a specific context. Karen mentions during the, 20, the negotiations for the 2014 Stormont House Agreement, mm. which was a political agreement that dealt in part with issues pertaining to dealing with the, the, the legacy of the, of the conflict in Northern Ireland. Um, there was a lot of discussion over issues of amnesty. On the issue of amnesties and whether or not there should be an amnesty for Soldier F and other mm. military veterans yeah. who served here in Northern Ireland. So we gave evidence to the Defence Select Committee in 2017 and essentially made a pretty powerful case, which has now been accepted politically, I think, by everyone, that if you introduce an amnesty for the state actors, it will apply across the board um, 
to the non-state actors as well. And so our view was, look, if you're going to do this thing, first of all, you can't obviate the right to truth. That, under international law, is binding. So you're going to have to have some kind of truth process that will meet um, what, we, what are called Article 2 responsibilities. Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights gives you certain rights um, to effective investigation. You can't get rid of that. Yeah. You can introduce an amnesty, um, but the amnesty would be verified across the board. And that's probably a useful example, I think, of the combination of technical expertise from an academic team working closely with a civil society organization. And our job in that is a kind of, we're kind of bullshit busters basically, you know. <coughs> our job is to, is to bust the bullshit of politicians. Mm. So politicians who are trying to say, oh, we can do this, you know. So particularly in that context, it was the two main unionist parties who were arguing for the um, statute of limitations, or at least elements within both, um, and saying, oh, don't worry, it won't apply to the terrorists. And we were saying, oh yes, it will. And here are the legal reasons why it will. Now, if you are, if you want to make a case, which is a perfectly valid case to make, if you want to make a case for introducing an amnesty, but don't be trying to lay to victims, particularly those who've been affected by non-state violence, that it won't apply to them. Mm. If you're going to have an amnesty, it's going to apply to everybody, and here are the legal reasons why that will happen. So let's be honest about it. Now, politicians really hate that. That's our job. Yeah, yeah, our job yeah. in all of this is to work collaboratively with good people, base these conversations in principles of human rights, and, and not allow politicians to, to get away with crap. Because increasingly, I think, and particularly in the, in the current era of Trump and Brexit and all of that, there has been a, a normalization of lies mm. and of you know, fake news and all of that stuff. And so in the middle of all that, there is a role and a job and a responsibility for nerds who know what they're talking about um, and to, to present information in an accessible format that is usable for people to then make up their own mind what they want but to do it from an informed position and not to allow people to get away with bullshit. So essentially providing truth to counter a politically expedient narrative that is not truthful. But we talk a lot, and, and you hear a lot of discussion generally in the media about how we're living in a you know quote-unquote post-truth era. Uh, does Do civil society organizations' ability to provide truthful engagement in these narratives Will that ultimately matter in convincing people? Will, will, will civil society organizations be able to better convince people uh, about issues relating to conflict and, and dealing with the legacy of conflict than will politicians? Again, I think it depends on what their agenda is and where their money is coming from. Mm -hmm. You know, while we have Facebook happy to put out adverts left right and center without any form of censorship then if we're not certain what the agenda of that civil society is yes they can raise the issue and yes we become more aware of it but if we're not certain what their agenda is where the money is coming from behind then we can get taken off down the wrong avenue and i think this actually brings us back to maybe a more holistic understanding of it has to be bottom-up, but you have to maybe use some of these big institutions because, and it may sound idealistic, but organisations like the UN, like the European Court of Human Rights, they are neutral, and I'm not talking in the way that some charities claim to be neutral, where it's actually avoiding big, hard conversations. It allows for a neutrality and a sort of clean slate for everyone. Um, and I think if you use the bottom-up approach involving these institutions, it's more likely to be 
successful for the for the victims of conflict yeah what's really nice about the development the un has had on transitional justice Mm. is that it makes it accessible to everyone it's not just the colonial powers who are able to pursue issues of genocide anymore it's universal yeah Uh, One criticism that I have heard leveled against the the United Nations, and I've studied this in past research on uh, the 1979-81 seizure of the American embassy in Tehran, the uh, provisional Iranian government and then eventually the Islamic Republic refused to cooperate with negotiations that were mediated by the UN by citing uh, uh, what has been described as a pro-state bias in the UN, so that they specifically said, if you know, the UN didn't do anything when the United States sponsored a coup in 1953 in Iran, so why should we trust them to, uh, you know, engage with us now? They're more concerned about the states of 52 hostages than they were about an entire country. So why should we deal with them? So there is still an imbalance and a willingness to cooperate with international institutions. I think that's a like criticism of the UN that is consistent throughout the world, and I think mm-hmm. will always be because of institutions in the UN, such as the Security Council, such as um, Mm -hmm. various different levels of the UN and who has power. But I think what my point was, was that this is the role of large international and somewhat accountable Mm organisations, as opposed to civil society organisations, which don't always have that reach, that neutrality or that accountability that we would expect of the UN. As much as that criticism is there and has been there in Yugoslavia, mm-hmm. in the cases that we spoke of of sexual violence in warfare, the, the UN is constantly criticised, but it's because it is such a, it's such a big idea to mm-hmm. cooperate all the nations. So I think it, it, there is that criticism and I'm not, definitely not defending it. <laughs> I'm not defending the indefensible or not trying to, but I think what is important out of this kind of top-down, bottom-up discussion is this understanding that there has to be sort of all three elements involved, but it just has to be victim-focused, victim-centric, victim-focused. And and civil society is positive insofar as it can reflect and amplify the voices of victims. Yes. So um, moving on from this, there are, of course, the courts as a system that has been established as a mode of transitional justice, but there's also really relevant to Kieran, apologies, which mm. he is actually responsible for writing the UN definition of apologies, which is so oh, cool. I didn't know that. Ah, oh, I, I think I think so I think that's important to to look at this as apologies and reconciliation and these kinds of things are things that come out of our previous discussions. So that's the real messy workings of getting to transitional justice and this is sort of what we're looking at as the results of transitional justice some of them what they what it can do for people i think people can't move on so that reconciliation yeah. often <laughs> can't happen and reconciliation is part of transitional justice yeah but until you can be certain within yourself somebody is genuinely sorry and understands and therefore is sincere yeah. in what they say that apology is a necessary step to have before you can then move forwards. Absolutely. If if we're looking at transitional justice as a series of processes that are designed to allow people to reconcile differing visions of the past, different different understandings of Mm. the past, apologies provide a really great forum to allow for a, a convergence of two different narratives and it allows people to say, I, I see what has happened and where 
the, the conflict has, has led us and, and what each of our roles in the conflict has been. And for that, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think it would be great if we could actually listen to Kieran's definition of apologies, which I think Morgan has. Yes. It. So an apology is a formal, solemn, and in most cases, public acknowledgement that human rights violations were committed in the past, that they caused serious and often irreparable harm to victims, and that the state, group, or individuals apologizing is accepting some or all of the responsibility for what happened. And I think that's a great <laughs> definition, yeah. and I'm yeah. sure Kieran smiles from side to side of his face when he thinks about it. But again, the point with an apology is the person giving it is accepting some responsibility. So David Cameron, hmm. he apologises to the victims of Bloody Sunday. I think for everybody to sit and listen to what he said on the television that day, that was a heartfelt apology. He meant every single word that he said. The Queen apologised around exactly the same thing. She meant what she said. They are heads of state. They are heads of the institution. For them to apologise means a lot. But if the wrong person apologises mm. within an organisation or within an institution, then that apology doesn't stand for the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm always sceptical of, of saying that big heads of big formal institutions have hearts but but I think from the Cameron apology I mean I've listened to it there are parts that I think were very I don't like to use the word brave but very stark that he brought up certain parts of it I think the language that he uses around he what he says when he says what happened should never have ever have happened that I think for the families would have been, we can't really say, but I hope would have been some comfort that he ad- admits that the British government, the British army were at fault. And I think that's what's really interesting about this apology is he is apologising on behalf of the British state, the British army and the cover up situation mm-hmm. that that occurred after it. And I think what's good in Kieran's definition, it stood out to me when I first read it was this idea of a public acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. I think to have that in the definition is quite a significant thing. And I think it's what makes this the definition of something like a UN institution rather than just, you know, an apology between mates and what makes it part of this transitional justice and, and really formal in that sense. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. And again, with your bottom up, it mm-hmm. was the families of the victims in Bloody Sunday that continue to be activists, that continue to yeah. confront the British government until the For whole years. subject was reopened and another investigation happened. And that is what led to David Cameron's apology. And they do have to be public apologies. I produced a, a, a kind of guide to how to do effective apologies a number of years ago with that NGO. And then I have a colleague here who's work, who works on institutional abuse within the churches, Amory McGlynn. Um, and I also started to get an interest in the banking crisis. Mm-hmm. And again, across these pieces, and so a colleague working on that is a colleague called Maurice McCarthy, who works in the, in the politics department here. And so um, we, we, what we noticed was that across these three uh, areas, even though they're very distinct, obviously, there are common issues that arise. Um, about the role of apologies in terms of dealing with past harms. 
you know, so for example, um, who should apologise? On behalf of who? Who has the authority to apologise on behalf of uh, a paramilitary organisation or a bank or a state um, or a church? Who? Um, what's the role of the victims in the preparation of an apology? So do you need to be talking to victims, um, exploring a draft, you know, like using words that, that aren't going to cause further upset or trauma? Um, and, and so what are, what's the processual aspects to it in terms um, what's the context within which an apology should be delivered? What's the choreography? So we're thinking here, for example, of David Cameron's apology on Bloody Sunday. Ex- extensive amount of choreography went into that. As you know, it was broadcast. So he is he receives the Savile Report. So sequentially, it's coming after truth. Savile Report into the events of Bloody Sunday, which exonerates um, the, the people who were shot dead by the British Army. Um, but then the, the families... Um, retrace the the steps of the original march in, in, in 1972 and so they retrace that that march and then they're inside in the guild hall in Derry and they're receiving the report early and at one stage very famously one of the families they can't come out to the public but one of the, before Cameron makes a statement in the House of Commons one of them puts their thumbs out through the grill through the, it's very iconic moment and then as Cameron's um, very fulsome apology actually is uh, broadcast live outside. There are thousands of people in the Guildhall in Derry, and each of the family members. Like, it's very powerful, very emotional. But a lot of choreography went into that. Like, a lot of thinking went into how the thing should be presented. So that's what we've been doing. We've been exploring the role of apology. So we've been interviewing apologisers. We've been talking to um, people who've been involved in the preparation or delivery of apologies from conflict-related stuff. So Republicans, loyalists, and, and uh, British state representatives. Um, also church um, people and banking people um, and also we talked to victims about how they received it we also um, did a, a lot of public facing work so we we uh, interviewed a thousand people across the island of Ireland to see whether or not you know Irish people or Northern Irish people um, think apologies matter having spent all that money we were pretty glad to find out they did because <laughs> it's quite expensive business we also did focus groups with the general public north and south um, about apologies it's probably the most extensive piece of work I think that's been done worldwide on apologies um, and, and thinking through apologies it, um, so we're quite excited about it we haven't really published much of the results yet I think there is still a long way to go in terms of making the rest of the reparations but like you say an apology is maybe the first step to getting to that point the, the admittance of wrongdoing is in, in this particular instance uh, an important step in publicly acknowledging that there was validity and there is is validity to uh, the uh, pain the pain yeah, yeah. The, the grievances and, and well, it was civil rights at that point sorry yeah. no. <laughs> and you're absolutely right but I, I still I'm yet to hear any banker from anywhere across the world <laughs> apologize in any meaningful way they haven't mm. done it and therefore we are still suffering as as peoples across the world today for what was done. To, to many, many of us, and nobody, nobody has stood up and said in a meaningful, sincere and open way, they're sorry. And I think that kind of leads to the idea of what are the barriers to kind of transitional justice, to apologies. Mm-hmm. It is not having an apology a barrier to transitional justice, would we kind of think about? I think that if... An apology is maybe not always necessary. I think right. victims yeah. might want one, and I understand that. That, but 
if you can then move on to other forms of reparations, that is maybe enough to fill that void. After all, the Nazis can't say sorry, but yeah. there is reparations in mm-hmm. that there's a financial payments being ongoing and the same you know I'm not sure that the IRA's apology has been quite as magnanimous maybe as as Cameron's apology has been but whatever you think reparations are still being made to both sides of the communities I think it's a difficult comparison a difficult comparison but that's why Cameron's apology was so brave. I think necessary. Necessary, but brave. <laughs> he did it. Necessary, yeah. So I think the reason why apologies are so crucial is because it brings something to the forefront and makes mm-hmm. it an open topic for discussion. And if we look at the its connection to reconciliation, yeah. um, the the truth and reconciliation trials in uh, South Africa, for example, yeah. the whole point of those was not necessarily to get an apology, but to bring the truth to the open. Mm -hmm. And in order to have transitional justice, you do have to have some element of truth and you do have to have some element of apology and recognition that these horrible things happened. And in order to move forward, Mm -hmm. you have to talk about them. Yeah. I wouldn't say that an apology is necessary or even necessarily always a positive part in in the process of transitional justice. Um, There are a lot of times where apologies, and and there have been criticisms of the South African TRC for precisely this reason, where apologies serve more as a way to allow people to move beyond a perceived wrongdoing rather than actually dealing with and and there's pressure then applied to the the victim to forgive just on that point no it just reminds me of when at the beginning of this uh, year at queen's university dr mamfella ramfelli and i apologize if i've said that (laughs) ever so slightly wrong i think she made gave the example of victims being essentially forced to hug the people that did them wrong and being forced to accept apologies when they weren't meant to. Actually, I think what she said about Archbishop Desmond Tutu and kind of some of the controversy around his position, which I'd never really heard about before, but I've always heard about him as sort of a great statesman, a really important part of the of the Truth and Reconciliation, but his role in kind of forcing some of this reconciliation upon victims that weren't ready. Yeah, more interest in there being an apology than yeah. with dealing with the root conflict between the yeah. victim and the perpetrator. And it seems to be more of a... Uh, act in distracting from the core issue rather than actually dealing with it. Yeah, it's really interesting to look at apologies and reconciliation and where they lie in the transitional justice timeline mm. and how that affects the impact they have mm. on the victims. Yeah. If there's an apology first, does that mean that nothing else happens after that? If there's a trial first, does that mean nothing else happens after <laughs> that? It, it's interesting to look at that and I be interested to find out where the best situation would be. And and I would totally agree with you on that because to a certain extent there had been commissions in around Bloody Sunday that had not Mm. been won, they were forced to have another one and it was only after the second commission did we get 
the apology. So, yes, I don't think an apology that comes within five minutes of signing a peace treaty is going to be an apology that is an honest apology in any way, shape or form. And to what you said, Carson, absolutely, victims have to be central in everything that transitional justice does. Now, maybe, maybe you know what, for, for religious purposes, people will say that they forgive the person who shot their brother, their father, their sister, their daughter. And that can be a huge part of, of reconciliation, of allowing that victim to move forward. Sure. But if they're forced into doing that or put in a position where they're felt to feel the problem if they don't say that, yes, yeah. then you have completely negated them as, as a victim and that shouldn't be allowed to happen. So to your point, Morgan, absolutely, it depends in the process where an apology comes and who makes that apology and for what reason they make that apology. So I guess then getting back to your, your broader question, Morgan, mm-hmm. um, on barriers, or was it Sinead? So it, 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 Just, yeah, barriers to to transitional justice, like what gets in the way. I think we've spoken that apologies too early or too late kind of do yeah. that and then which is other things that because it seems like it's a real challenge karen talks about uh the issue of political will as being a, a large and oftentimes a large barrier to transitional justice he talks about and, and katrina you had mentioned earlier the 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 market crash affected iceland in such a way that it's prosecution of the the bankers who were uh, in, in part responsible for exacerbating the crisis was necessary, as you had mentioned, Katrina, in uh, dealing with the the tremendous ramifications of the problem. And so there was significant political will behind the process of prosecuting these bankers. And that political will doesn't always exist in societies where you have people who, in, in Northern Ireland, sometimes you'll, you'll hear people say they don't want a Truth and Reconciliation mm. Commission. Or there are you know political parties of all stripes who are opposed to certain processes that would, would be productive in transitional jobs. And then in terms of the work, um, one, one of the pieces of work that we've been involved with here in Queens has been around contributing to the legacy debate. So as you know, in 1998, when the Good Friday Agreement was signed, there was no overarching mechanism agreed to deal with the past. So there was no Truth Commission, for example. Um, the reason being that at the time, those negotiating the Good Friday Agreement thought that it was hard enough to get the agreement over the line, and if they tried to include discussions on dealing with the past, um, it would it, they would never have got an agreement. I think that's probably true, actually. I don't think they would have got an agreement. So I'm not, not retrospectively blaming them. But the result of that absence was uh, a piecemeal approach to the past, whereby, um, in effect, the criminal justice system has carried a lot of the weight. Um, so you've had individual bits of the criminal justice system, the police ombudsman's office, for example, or the inquest system, or different policing mechanisms, um, which have been addressing the past. I think what's really interesting about the Northern Ireland situation is that they have put other systems in place in the transitional justice framework that have been effective in helping other than apologies and reconciliation. They have their um, community policing. Yeah. Uh, they've really upped the ante on that with the police ombudsman's office. Mm-hmm. Ombudsman. ombudsman. The police ombudsman's yeah. office. Let's say close. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very bad at pronunciation today. <laughs> 
But what yeah. they've done there is that they've ensured that there is a citizen-based, or well, at least not as necessarily tied to... Yeah, non- it, it's it's outside of the police force yeah. that checks and makes sure that arrests are legal, mm. that they're justified. I'm skeptical, but sure. Of the <laughs> <laughs> Not of the ombudsman, I'm sure I'm assuming it's a man. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to assume it's a man. Um, I, I'm well, sure he is a perfectly altruistic person, but I think that ideas of community policing are interesting and positive, and I think that some of the way that they worked in Northern Ireland are good. I think when some of the roots of the conflict were so linked to the police force mm-hmm. and the create and the makeup of that police force, I think they had to change the policing. I don't think you could have moved on without it. So I don't know how much that is transitional justice versus versus a necessary thing that had to be done. Mm-hmm. But I But would... isn't that what transitional mm, justice, justice is? Unnecessary. Yeah, but like was it who was it for? Yeah. Was it was it victim centric? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I do believe in in the Northern Irish Police Force. They now have to sign a piece of paper to say they will abide by all human rights. Now I can't see why you wouldn't want. I can see why you wouldn't want to sign that piece of paper, but I don't see why you shouldn't have to sign that piece of paper if if you're going to be a policeman or a policewoman. And I can't see why any policeman or woman anywhere in any country across the globe wouldn't want to sign that piece of paper. I mean, I, I'm I'm wary of this conversation about things. But yeah, I think it's it's a step, isn't it? Is transitional justice possible if there is no public will to engage in, in a critical examination of your own community's involvement in, in conflict. Uh, but this is where I would say another part of transitional justice is, is education. Mm. And until we start educating each side about each side mm. and allow that communication and conversation between each side... I know much more about American history being here at university and having American students around me mm-hmm. than I knew before I came here. You're welcome. I'm from England, <laughs> and you know what? I found more out about Northern Ireland and what created the Northern Ireland conflict coming to Northern Ireland. Yeah. So education for me has to take a lead, and education is always part of a process of allowing communication and so education can carry on being that place where communities get together where schools are no longer divided along religious grounds or the grounds of colour or whatever identity people see as a problem take those divisions out and from a young age people learn that it doesn't matter that they're all valid and that can start within schools that Mm. starts the conversation it doesn't as you say right the wrongs of the past but as those people get older they will realize the validity of both sides of the conversation and then maybe we can start to go back and and have those conversations and put some of the things right don't ask me how you do it yeah <laughs> and i'm That's not what here. you're meant to be doing <laughs> i'm no. not here to decide you know how much any one person is worth but what i do know is through education i know an awful lot more today than i did six months ago 
And I think that brings us really nicely to kind of finishing off this topic. I mean, I feel like I've learned a lot. I did not take this module, but it sounded fascinating and I kind of wish I did. And I think it is a really big topic. I think we've only just touched the surface today on some of the issues. I think we've given a good outline of some of the main parts. We've tried to give a definition or at least talked about the definition of what transitional justice is. We've looked at this sort of top-down, bottom-up tension um, and considering maybe a more of a holistic uh, approach would, would be better for all people involved, specifically for victims, and it should always be victim-centric. And I think this this final conversation about apologies and reconciliation and some of the barriers to transitional justice has been really valuable to me. I think it's brought up some biases I maybe have inside myself and maybe I need to consider, like you say, more education and more learning about things. Um, but yeah, I think it's been a really great conversation. I think thank you so much, Katrina, for yeah. bringing yes, it to thank us. You. It's a pleasure. And for me, we just have to be open to listen to one another. Oh. One another has a valid point and we need to listen. And as long as we keep listening to each other, we can keep moving forwards. And keep listening to Empart. Keep <laughs> listening to Empart. Down the login in a bubble. Hargrave doing this episode segment of Down the Lagon in a Bubble. This is the part of the show where we offer you some insight into current events and further resources on topics discussed within this episode. Links to those resources will be shared on our social media, so stay tuned for that information as well. So let's get into it. The coronavirus has been on the minds of many people in the last couple of weeks. It's a respiratory virus spread through the air or when coming in contact with surfaces that have been contaminated. Originating from Wuhan, a city in China with over 11 million people, there are now reports of travelers to countries such as the United States, Thailand, Taiwan, and South Korea being diagnosed with the virus. In Vox's Today Explain, journalist Julia Belouz and host Sean Razarman discuss what the coronavirus is and China's response to the outbreak. While drawing parallels to China's SARS outbreak, they also discuss why there are more outbreaks like this virus in the 21st century than were previously recorded. If you're unfamiliar with the SARS outbreak, NPR's On Point breaks down the history of the SARS outbreak in 2003, including their own direct reporting from nearly 20 years ago, and what lessons from then can be applied to this new coronavirus. Guests include doctors Anthony Fucci, Samir Mabarak, and Jennifer Nuzzo, along with host Megan Chikapari. In the next recommendation, BBC journalist Farooq Chothia gives a thorough overview of the nearly decade-long conflict in Libya. Chothia also discusses the exclusion of the African Union from negotiations and diplomatic proceedings, as well as the shortcomings of previous interventions from the African Union. Ultimately, the article calls for more inclusion from African nations in the process, specifically South Africa and Sierra Leone, who have a history of coming out of conflict and into reconciliation. Our next recommendation is an Associated Press article from journalist Julius Alam, who reports on evidence collection in the International Criminal Court case against Myanmar for crimes against the Rohingya Muslims. While Myanmar is not cooperating with the investigation, 
Evidence from refugee camps in Bangladesh and witnesses in neighboring countries will still be collected. Additionally, Bangladesh will begin the repatriation of Rohingya refugees back to Myanmar in accordance with a prior agreement between the two countries. For more information, please check out this article. This next recommendation is a YouTube video from the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia, which was created to prosecute crimes against humanity committed during the Khmer Rouge regime in the late 1970s. The video consists of an apology from the director of one of the prison camps in Cambodia at the time. It's an interesting and informative video demonstrating the power of an apology and the aspect of forgiveness discussed in this episode. This last recommendation is for those interested in learning more about transitional justice. Michael Newman is an emeritus professor at London Metropolitan University. He's been teaching war, peace, and world order at NYU London since 2011. In this podcast, as part of the War Crimes Spring Term Seminar Series at King's College London, he discusses topics in his new book, Transitional Justice, Contending with the Past. You can find all of these resources on our social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at QUBMPod. If you have some resources you think we should share or any suggestions for the MPod team's later episodes, please email us at mpodmitchell at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us for this segment of Down the Wagon in a Bubble. I'm Lindsay Hargrave. Thank you to Kieran McAvoy for his excellent contribution this week, and as always, to Stephen Mullen for his editorial contributions. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining this episode of NPOT. Listen again soon. If you liked this episode, please feel free to share it with your friends and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at QUBMPod and Instagram at QUBMPod. Do you have something to add or any questions to ask? Please feel free to share your feedback and comments with us at mpodmitchell at gmail.com. Here at MPod, we discuss important issues, but they're not always easy to talk about, and we recognize that they might be sensitive for some listeners. We'd like to remind all listeners that Queen's Wellbeing Service offers a drop-in service every weekday during term time between 12.30 and 1.30 p.m. You can also contact the Wellbeing Service at 02890-972-893 or by email at studentwellbeing at qub.ac.uk. This podcast represents the perspective of the students involved in the program and the people interviewed in the podcast. We understand that this is not representative of all the students at Queen's or at the Mitchell Institute. MPOD is a production of the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security, and Justice at Queen's University Belfast. Once again, thank you for listening.